Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Sox, your Boston Red Sox for the 2018 World Series champions. You're on the duck boat, you and Coley Mick, dodging beers left and right. Walk me through the experience that you and Coley Mick had on the duck boats during the 2018 Red Sox World Series parade. Uh, I mean, that was, uh, that was the best day of my life. I don't think anything could ever top that. Uh, <laughs> we got there super early. We were like the first people on any duck boat, never mind our own duck boat. We got on there. Um, we were on JD's duck boat with Rafael Devers and Hector Velasquez, and then you know those guys showed up. And then the boat next to us was uh, it was like Pedroia, um, Brock, uh, Jackie, and Benintendi. So uh, Benintendi actually threw me my first beer, and then it was downhill from there. <laughs> I mean, like, originally, what the, like, the guy that was running the boat, like, he came on, and he was like, all right, like, the players are going to be up on this platform, and then, like, friends and family, like, you guys are, like, in the actual boat. So I thought, you know, we were just going to sit on the inside of the boat, and, like, look out the window, and I was just going to, like, take in the crowd or whatever. Um, but, you know, 10 minutes into the parade, JD calls me and Coley up to the platform where, like, all the players were. And that's where it really just, uh, we went from zero to a hundred real quick. (laughs) uh, There's like fans that were like throwing beers at us and nips and everything. So, I mean, it was like a, it was close to like a two hour parade and we were just sucking down anything that was being thrown our way. So, uh, it was crazy to see, you know, when you take that first turn onto Boylston, um, right where, you know, Remy's is and like the baseball tavern. I, I you know, because they shut that whole street down. Right. You look to the right, and there's just a sea of people in the street. There's people on top of like light posts and trucks and everything. It was it was insane to see how many people came out for it and how excited they were to see the players. And um, yeah, that was that was easily the best day of my life. Throughout the postseason, you and Eric Hubs had a bit of a rivalry going on, especially when. The Yankees lost in the ALDS. Take me through um, what Hubs' postseason experience was from when the Yankees were eliminated in the ALDS to when the Sox eventually won it in L.A. Yeah, I mean, so basically what happened with Hubs was that, I want to say it was for the wild card game, he, he advertised like a barstool Yankees watch party at a bar and then used like the barstool logo on the flyer and, like, uh, a bunch of people would go to this bar, but, like, didn't sell any tickets for it, and then he didn't go. So not only was he not there, but, like, all he did was drive a bunch of business to a bar, and then Barstool benefited from that 0%. <laughs> so uh, Dave caught wind of this, and he said his punishment is that if the Red Sox beat the Yankees in the division series, that he had to essentially follow the Red Sox through the remainder of their playoff run, which obviously ended in a World Series title, so he had to follow the Red Sox until the very end. <laughs> um, so he 
uh, he ended up during the Houston series. He came to Boston and uh, Dallas Braden because you know Hubs was in his face during the wild card game. Dallas returned the favor and then some during the ALCS. And he got him blackout drunk. Uh, there was a point where he like cut himself on some glass that was on the floor, oh, and he was like drinking his own blood because he was so drunk. Uh, and then during the World Series, and I even said to him, I was like, how, how bad of a punishment can it really be? You get to you get to fly out to L.A., nice hotel, uh, you get to watch a World Series, you get to see a World Series clincher, but I do, I do think that it's ironic and funny that the first time that he ever saw a World Series clincher was the Red Sox. So I get, I get some, some pleasure in that. Uh, plus the fact that when... When the Red Sox won the World Series, I mean, obviously all the Dodgers fans split. So where we were, we were sitting five rows from the field, but, like, the Dodgers stadium security, like, if you didn't have tickets to, like, that section right in front of the field, they didn't even let you down there even after the game was over. So there was just, like, a crowd of Red Sox fans in that first section in front of the, the field box section. So they all knew who Humps was. They were all heckling the shit out of him. So it was basically, uh, it was like the Red Sox won the World Series. Dallas dumped a, a bottle of water on him after. Uh, and then he basically just got heckled by uh, hundreds of Red Sox fans while he watched his arch nemesis celebrate a World Series title. <laughs> that's, that's insane. And it all started because basically his watch party went to shit. And yes, it all started because he's an incompetent fool who scheduled a watch party and then didn't go to it and didn't generate any money for the company. Oh, Jesus. I, I mean, my next question was going to be, like, if the Yankees had won the ALDS over the Sox, would it, have you done the same thing? No, because I didn't do anything stupid. <laughs> um, I probably I probably would have went, but, like, I wouldn't obviously not have had to have won the dunce cap. Uh, I'm sure Dallas wouldn't have been uh, punishing me the way that he punished Hub. So yeah, I, I probably would have watched it till the end just just for the, the video's sake and the content purposes. Um, but Hub's experience was far more of a punishment than mine would have been if I just had to simply watch the games. The Red Sox winning the World Series had a lot of unsung heroes, guys like Steve Pierce who won the World Series MVP, Nathan Avaldi with that brilliant performance in Game 3 ended up getting the loss in that 18-inning game. Uh, the Red Sox don't have much cap space to spend this offseason. Yeah, cap space this offseason. Given that they've already signed Steve Pierce to a one-year deal, do the Sox have room to bring back guys like Craig Kimbrell or Nathan Avaldi? Um, I think that they do, yeah. I just don't think that Kimbrell is, is going to end up working out. Um, you yeah, know, the Red Sox, right now, I would say the number that the Red Sox have in mind and the number that Kimbrell will inevitably sign for are pretty far apart. Like, I think uh, they'll probably, the Red Sox would probably at most go three years, 45, and Kimbrell's going to get between 65 and 70 over three years. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, they, they would, which I still think three years, 45 is a pretty fair offer. You know, I think, um, I think, uh, Chapman and Jansen got like an average of like between 16 and 17, so an average of 15 for Kimbrel, who's 
two years older than those guys. Like, when they signed those deals, they were going into their age 29 season, and Kimball's going into his age 31 season. So I don't think that it's that far off from what he's actually worth. But some team is going to be desperate for, for a closer, and the Red Sox obviously feel like they can uh, explore other options, which I don't know if I agree with that either. You know, I, I think Kimball was about as, as automatic as it gets in, for, for closers in Major League Baseball. But um, if they want to explore other options, then they have the right to do that, and it would obviously be uh, less expensive. But I think uh, Nathan Eovaldi is probably at the top of their priority list right now. I don't know how relevant this is right now, given that they just re-signed Steve Pierce, but the Sox were linked to Paul Goldschmidt for a little bit. What would a lineup with Mookie Betts, J.D. Martinez, and Paul Goldschmidt in the middle look like on top of guys like Bogarts and Benintendi and Pierce? Yeah, and I mean, you also have to factor in that Dustin Pedroia comes back, too. Right. You know, I think, uh, you know when Pedroia comes back, uh, you know, I don't know if he's going to be their number two. You know, I feel like that's where he's done the best, but after missing essentially an entire year, only playing three games, he's probably going to be a bottom of the order guy when he comes back. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't think that the, the Goldschmidt thing is going to happen. He's got, he's going to be a free agent after coming season. So I don't think that the Red Sox right now, especially with Moreland and now they're bringing back Pierce, I don't think that there's really a need for a guy like Goldschmidt. Obviously, he's, you know, he's one of the best, uh, not just first baseman in baseball. He's just one of the best hitters. He's one of the best players in baseball. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't see Goldschmidt uh, in a Red Sox uniform in, in 2019. But uh, and when they did sign Moreland to that two-year deal, I think when like the day that they re, the day that they re-signed Mitch Moreland to a two-year deal, I wrote that he is going to be a free agent the same time as as Paul Goldschmidt. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule out the Red Sox being interested in Goldschmidt as a free agent after next year, but I, I can't see them trading for the guy. My big thing on that was Goldschmidt and Martinez were actually teammates for half a year there in Arizona, and they uh, hit together. They took extra BP together. A little chemistry there would have been fun to see. Next question for you. This was... Awards week, Mookie Betts, obviously, AL MVP. Um, what are your thoughts on Jacob DeGrom bringing home the Cy Young Award this year? Yeah, I think it should have been unanimous. That was one of the best pitching seasons of all time. Uh, I also think that he, uh, I mean, if the Mets had done anything for the guy, you know, I think something, there's like some stat that if he, if the Mets had averaged like three runs per game for Degrom, he would have won like twenty eight games or something right. like that. Uh, you know, so like he doesn't control those factors. So say hypothetically, the Mets did do that; they scored an average of three runs per game for Degrom in twenty eighteen, and he's a twenty eight game winner. Like he should have been right in the middle of the MVP discussion. Like never mind the Cy Young. I feel like that was you know that's unanimous except for that one dude that gave him a third place vote for whatever reason I, I haven't even seen his his explanation the only thing that I saw was he went on some radio station and the dude just chewed him out he didn't even give an explanation he kind of just hung up so I, I think it's kind of weak when you know you, you rob a guy of the unanimous Cy Young decision and then you don't even have the balls to defend why you, you chose to you know put him third 
But uh, as far as like the MVP goes, yeah, those are the only reason why he wasn't in the in the discussion were because of factors that were out of his control. So uh, I think I think he really should have been more heavily uh, involved in the MVP discussion over a guy like Arenado, who's one of my favorite players in baseball. He might even be my favorite player in baseball. Um, but yeah, I think he should have at least been a finalist. You say that about Degrom. My next question is. J.D. Martinez obviously won first player ever to win two silver sluggers in the same season in right field and D.H. Do you think he should have been a candidate over a guy like Mike Trout, who is obviously the best player in baseball but didn't really play an important game all season? Yeah, um, I mean, Mike Trout, like, I'm, not, I'm not one of those guys that looks at like playoff teams that heavily in the MVP discussion. I think you know, whoever has the best statistical season is the MVP. Like, it's the same thing that I'm talking about with DeGrom and, like, his teammates not giving him the run support to be involved in the MVP discussion. He doesn't control that stuff. And Mike Trout doesn't control whether or not his team is in the playoff discussion or in the playoff one at all. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm more than fine with Trout being number two. I think it's crazy. How, I think he's... He tied the record for most runner-up finishes for MVP of all time. He's like, what, 25, 26 years old? Right. So, um, it's incredible what he's been able to do. But uh, I think when it's close, like when you literally can't tell, like when I um, when I was trying to break down NL Rookie of the Year between Ronald Acuna Jr. and Juan Soto, it was so close that if, if you're talking about an MVP discussion between those two, then it's like, all right, you lean towards the Kuya because he, when he got moved to the leadoff spot, the Braves took off, they made the playoffs. Um, that's like a last sort of unit of measurement that I would use in an MVP discussion. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I got no problem with... If if Mike Trout had better numbers than Mookie, if if he won the MVP, sure, go right ahead. If you have the best statistical season, that's who should win the award. You even think that even though Mike Trout really didn't play that many two important games all year, kind of like I feel like JD Martinez bringing him in this year kind of changed that entire Red Sox offense from a team lat or in 2017 didn't hit a lot of home runs this year one of the top five teams in home runs, do you think that um, J.D. Martinez should have gotten the edge in the case because he played for a more um, important team that was in the pennant race? Yeah, I mean, like, uh, it's, it's hard to say because when, when you vote for MVP, the ballot literally says, like, value is open to your interpretation. And... Uh, I obviously think that J.D. Martinez was more valuable to the Red Sox than, say, uh, Mike Trout was to the Angels because, you know, you're talking about a team that won the World Series, won 108 games, and it was essentially the same team as last year, uh, but then you add in J.D., who not just put up the numbers that he did from an offensive standpoint, but also was a mentor to guys like Bogarts and Betts and Bradley and all these guys that wanted to learn from him, like, his, you know, watching his pregame preparation and uh, the way that he goes about preparing for each game and the video that he looks at and the data that he looks at. 
uh, and the notes that he takes after every single at-bat. He's a psychopath, and I think that the guys that were hungry for that information, they gravitated towards a guy like J.D., and I think that that is incredibly valuable, which is why um, I kept saying that Mookie Betts was the league MVP because he was statistically the best player in the league, but J.D. Martinez was the Red Sox MVP because of you know not only what he did offensively, but how he helped everyone around him be better. You mentioned uh, Soto and Acuna Jr. earlier. Who did you actually vote for NL MV, NL Rookie of the Year award, Soto or Acuna? I had, I had Soto by a hair. Um, but like when I was looking at all the numbers, it was it was very very even. Um, it was like you know Acuna has a check here, Soto has a check there, and then it just went back and forth. Um, but I think when it came down to, you had to like look at the, the geekiest numbers of all time right. to sort of find somewhat of an edge. Um, and that's sort of where like Soto for me um, had somewhat of a statistical edge over Acuna. But I think the voters maybe took that MVP approach where because uh, I didn't I didn't factor in playoffs. Like I didn't I didn't factor in like impact on the team that they played for. I just looked at the numbers that they put up, and that was it. Um, like, if, if you're a voter and you're, you're factoring in, like, you know, numbers plus impact on your team, then, yeah, I would have I voted for Acuna. Uh, I think that Acuna definitely had a bigger impact on the Braves than Soto did on the Nationals, but uh, I think that Soto had a slightly better statistical season. I feel like this is like the most questionable award that was given at the AL Rookie of the Year Award. I get how Shohei Otani is the first two-way player since Babe Ruth and all that. Uh, do you think, Red Sox fan or not, do you think Shohei Otani should have won the award over Miguel Andahar? No, I, we did the podcast before the award came out, and I said Andahar should have won the award. And, um, yeah, like... Otani had a higher wins above replacement, and that's more because Andahar is a disaster defensively. Uh, but, you know, Andahar is out there playing every single day. Otani's not. Um, Otani's in the lineup kind of when it favors him matchup-wise. And they keep talking about, oh, he pitched. It's like, yeah, he threw like 50 innings. It's like, if he had done, if he had came in and done exactly as advertised, like he pitched a full season right. and he, you know, DH'd here and there and uh, he accumulates whatever, like 400, 500 plate appearances, something crazy like that, then yeah, I mean, it's not even a discussion, but that's not what happened. Like he, he threw 50 innings. Like I don't know how that is such a huge scale tipper uh, over a guy like Andahar who played every single day and was an extra base hit machine um, and, and drove in a bunch of runs. Yeah, I mean, like, if, if, you, look at, if, if you look at the overall impact, and uh, I, I want to say it might have been, like, what, 250 plate appearances? Either, like, 250 or 150 plate appearances more right. than, than Otani. Um, yeah, like, the 50 innings to me doesn't do a whole lot when it's, like, it was the first couple months of the season. It's not like uh, it's not like he pitched over an entire season. It was just like a few starts. So um, yeah, I feel like Andahar should have won it. Uh, topic one I said about Mike Trout, Otani probably played 
50 fewer less games than Andujar did, and none of them were important, whereas Andujar had higher batting average, more home runs in the middle of a pennant race when guys like Gary Sanchez are hitting 180 and Aaron Judge is out for two months. So I feel like as soon as Otani signed that contract and if he had a decent season, he was winning that award. Looking back at it now. Next question, a personal question for you. First, favorite Major League Baseball player of all time? You kind of said Nolan Arenado before. And two, favorite Red Sox player of all time? Favorite player of all time, Calvin Jr., uh, yeah, that's always been my guy. I just got to interview him like a couple of weeks ago, which was uh, that was a trip. I never, <laughs> I never even thought I'd get to meet the guy. Never mind sit in a room with him and ask him anything I wanted for like a half an hour. So right. um, that was that was pretty crazy. And then favorite Red Sox player of all time is really it depends on the day. You know, <laughs> like it, it it rotates between Nomar, Manny, Pedro, and David Ortiz. Like those are my guys. Um, you know, like when I think about hitting, I think about Manny Ramirez. And when I think about like my childhood Red Sox memories, I think about Nomar. And then obviously when I think about like pitching, I think about Pedro. But then when you think about like the Red Sox and like all like the best memories that I have of the Red Sox, like David Ortiz is at the forefront of all that. So it would be hard to pick just one between those four guys. So like that's, that one's tough. <laughs> I'm sure. Favorite interview? You said Cal Ripken Jr. a few weeks ago. Your favorite interview as a writer or podcaster thus far? Huh. Um, damn. Favorite <laughs> interview of all time. I mean, the Joe Kelly one was pretty cool. I would say, I would say probably the J.D. Martinez one, though, because uh, we got to, I mean, the Red Sox, this was the first year that the Red Sox gave us access, and that wasn't like a right-away thing. It kind of started where uh, I went out to Oakland in April, and then we had press passes, so I kind of asked the team, I was like, hey, I have these out in Oakland, I'd like to continue doing this in Boston. We worked on it, and then they started giving me press passes, so I'd go there for batting practice just to show face, be accountable, you know, talk to some of the guys if they wanted to talk. And then by September, we started being able to, you know, orchestrate or plan these interviews through the team. And we started interviewing guys, like, in the Red Sox dugout, which was really cool. And uh, it's, it's totally different because, um, you know, if you're, if you're one of, like, the beat writers and you want to interview a player, they might give you five minutes in the clubhouse. Right. But J.D. gave us, like, 45 minutes in the Red Sox <laughs> dugout just, like, talking about, you know, literally whatever we wanted to right. talk about. So uh, I would say that that one is probably my favorite. That's awesome. And here's probably the toughest question of all. Favorite moment as a Red Sox fan in your entire life? <laughs> Damn. Um, um, probably, I mean... The 2018 parade is probably my favorite moment as a Red Sox fan. Like, that was, like, just nothing could ever top that. But, right. like, we're talking just games. I would say being at game six of the 2013 World Series, that was awesome. Uh, game four of the 04 ALCS, probably number two. And then seeing the Red Sox win it all in 2018 and out in L.A., that was Probably number three, and it's so hard to pick. <laughs> it's really difficult to pick, like, uh, you know, 
over the past 15 years with you know four World Series titles and a ton of classic games that they played along the way. Uh, yeah, I would, say, I would have to say that being at Game 6 of the 2013 World Series at Fenway was number one, though. You've been a writer for a long time now with the baseball show at NBC Sports Boston with Lou Merloni. You have your starting nine podcast with Dallas Braden, obviously Section 10 with... Coley and Steve uh, in your new latest show, the CCK show with Kevin Clancy and Case Smith. Talk to me a little bit about Starting Nine and Section 10 and your latest show, CCK, with Clancy and Smith. Um, I mean, I, I think like Starting Nine is, is the, the bigger audience in terms of podcasting. Uh, but Section 10, I mean, like the cult following that right. that thing has is insane. Like when we were doing those live shows before the playoff games in Boston and like people knew every word to our intros and then uh, we didn't have to do ad reads during the live shows but we did them anyway just because like it's part of the listening experience for like section 10 fans so we were doing the ad reads and people knew the words for the ad reads it was <laughs> crazy so uh, you know getting to work with Dallas it's like you know, there's different versions. Like, I, I'm a different person on each of those three shows. Like, on, like, the CCK show, we, we just finished week one of that, and it's like, I don't even really talk baseball on that show. I'm sure we will a lot during the season. Um, but that's sort of my outlet to talk about other things. Like, I, there, there are other things that interest me, but I've never had like an outlet to actually talk about those things for Barstool professionally at all because I've always just been, you know, right in the baseball vertical. But, um, you know, getting to work with Dallas on starting night has been great. He's, um, in terms of, like, you know, passion, like I, I haven't met anyone who's as passionate about baseball as Dallas is, and it's infectious, and it makes you excited to – to do the show every day and it makes you want to like stay up on your game. Like that's why, you know, this season was, you know, my first full season living in New York. So I bought like a bunch of TVs and like, I got like this five, during the season, it's like a six screen experience to watch as many games as possible because I want to, be able to keep up with Dallas like I never wanted to be like Dallas is so far ahead of me right. in terms of baseball knowledge so like I'm you know dedicating every waking moment to being able to keep up with Dallas um and obviously Jay Hayes our producer but he's become a third voice on on the starting nine podcast and he's he's probably the smartest guy on the show to be honest with you he's he's a he's a brilliant baseball guy so I I love being able to do starting nine because I feel like you know if you're a Red Sox fan and you follow me from my Red Sox stuff, you have Section 10. But I'm a baseball fan. Like, right. I love baseball. Obviously, like, the Red Sox are my number one. But I could talk about all 30 teams, you know, the whole roster, like, whatever you want to do. Like, if, if I bump into a Mets fan on the street, we talk about the Mets. Like, they, we don't even talk about the Red Sox. So, uh, like, I enjoy all three shows because all three kind of give me a different uh, outlet to, to talk about something that interests me a lot. So you had starting, or you have starting nine, section 10. You had another podcast that was actually canceled off the top rope with you and Robbie Fox. Why was that podcast canceled? Because it kind of looked like you guys brought in some formidable guests, guys like Chris Jericho and Kevin Owens. 
as a big pro wrestling guy, did it just not bring in like any following? No, it did. I, I mean, I feel like that that show getting canceled was more of like a Dave's grudge against Robbie. Like they they weren't getting along at the time, and I think that he kind of just canceled it to, do, to you know flex his muscles, which right. he's been known to do. Um, yeah, there there is something. I mean, the numbers were very good for a wrestling podcast. That uh, th- the reason, like w- when we started the podcast we started it after wrestlemania and it got canceled before the royal rumble and if you're a wrestling fan you know that like the intense wrestling season is wrestlemania WrestleMania. yeah Yeah, it's like the royal rumble up to wrestlemania like january to, to april like that's that's like the time to tune in and from the top rope existed outside of that window so i feel like we didn't really get a fair shake but we still, I mean, like almost every episode, we had a, we had a huge list of big name guests in the wrestling industry, and it was something that I really enjoyed doing. Um, and it was funny because you know there would be like Yankee fans that would listen to that show, and they'd be like, "I hate you because I hate the Red Sox, and I hate like who you are on Twitter, and I hate all the Section Ten stuff that you post." But I love wrestling, and you love wrestling, so it was kind of. It was opening me up to a new audience that I never ever would have reached otherwise because they hate me for for baseball reasons. Um, so I think I think what I'm going to try to do is uh, I I would love to be able to still do that show from time to time. Like maybe if it's just for pay per views or maybe if it's just for WrestleMania season. Um, I wrestling fans love a great surprise comeback, so maybe there will be one in the future. Right and. On the topic of pro wrestling, are you going to watch Survivor Series tomorrow night? I'm, I am, but I will say this. I, during baseball season, did not really follow wrestling at all. Like right. I, I kind of like loose. I followed it from afar. Like if something big happened, I would go and like watch the highlights on YouTube or something like that. But I haven't watched like a full episode of Raw probably since March. Or probably since WrestleMania. Like I... Uh, it's just so it takes so much time to like keep up with it on top of everything else so, so much content um, too we're all three hours long it's like unbearable yeah, to watch plus like now that they have like the brand split like it, before you could get away with not watching Smackdown because it was just like a repeat of Raw in a basically form. that's basically yeah, what it was without, without the interesting promos or, or storyline development but now you, you have to keep up with both um so, yeah, I, I just don't really have the time to do it, but I, I think I'm going to jump back in on the baseball lower. Now, Daniel Bryan won the title on SmackDown over AJ Styles' heel turn, which I'm still kind of baffled by. What are your thoughts on Brock Lesnar versus Daniel Bryan first and then Daniel Bryan's heel turn? Yeah, I, I, I'm, that's a match that I think I've, I've been waiting to see. I mean, they obviously couldn't do it right off the back. They had... Uh, the feud with The Miz was kind of something that had been boring for years. Right. <laughs> so I, I knew that that was going to be the first on the list. But, yeah, since he's been cleared, which I honestly never thought that we'd see him in a WWE ring ever again. I thought uh, I thought that was going to be something where WWE didn't want to touch that because of the concussions and he'd go to Ring of Honor, maybe New Japan. Um but now that he's back, I think him versus Brock is a match that uh, I think you know diehard wrestling fans have been waiting to 
that it's kind of like a champion versus champion thing. It's, it's all the hype that's been, which is kind of crazy because they're, they, they've been hyping up like the, the total days champion thing for, for Lesnar and AJ Styles recently. And then they change your plans. Now it's Daniel Bryan. But I like, I like the heel turn. I like the heel turn. Um, and, and Robbie made this point the other day to me. He said that, uh, you know, Daniel Bryan has been obviously one of the hottest stars in the industry for a long time, but he was not as hot as a babyface. Um, you know, in this, you know, since his return, he, it's not like he's been like a mega star. Right. Not, he hasn't been. He hasn't been. Can't miss. Um, so when you can freshen up your character, I think that that's a good thing, and it'll just make him even more popular when he turns face again. And I feel like this is going to be one of those things, like they turn Becky Lynch heel, but everybody still goes crazy when their music hits. I feel like that's going to be the same deal with Daniel Bryan since he was so over for all these years. It's kind of be, going to be like Roman, where he's supposed to be the baby face, but everybody boos him, and now Daniel Bryan's going to be the heel. I still feel like he's going to get cheered. Yeah, but I feel like right now, uh, Becky Lynch is one of the best things in the company right now. Oh, like, for sure. Becky Lynch is great. She has been awesome. From what I've seen of, of her heel work, uh, that's been one of the, like, if you if, if you don't have time to watch wrestling, don't miss Becky Lynch's segments because she's been awesome as a heel. And it's been so new and uh I guess it's kind of breathed new life into her character. So I'm hoping that the same happens for Daniel Bryan because when he was a heel the last time, no one really cared about Daniel Bryan. Like it was like, yeah, he's a heel. Yeah, he's he has like the the the, the WWE Championship, and that's what he got. Uh, I think he lost in what 28 seconds to Shane right, yeah. WrestleMania 28 or whatever it was. And like no one cared about that. So. This is like his first heel run. As a top guy, he yeah. Became like a top guy, yeah. I don't know if you watch Crown Jewel. We've talked about this numerous times on our show. We really, honestly, like ever since I've started watching pro wrestling, I feel like this was one of the worst shows WWE has put out. Uh, <laughs> th- thoughts on Crown Jewel? Shawn Michaels' return, Shane winning the World Cup, which is still just why. And then Brock Lesnar squashing Braun Strowman, who's supposed to be one of the top faces in the company right now. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to say I hated it, but when I, when I finished watching it, I was like, huh, I, I, don't, I fundamentally do not understand what we're doing here. Right. Which is kind of like what CM Punk was saying when he left. He was like, I, just, I don't get what we're doing here. Uh, and you could say that to a number of different matches uh, and just the overall show, like you said. Like, I, I don't know what the logic was. I would say it, more people were probably upset with, you know, oh, they're the, the DX and Brothers of Destruction thing. Like, whatever. You want to put that on the card? I'm going to watch it. I, I feel like too many, like, wrestling fans get super upset about nostalgia acts. It's like, you know, it's... It, it's fun. It, it, you're you're gonna miss them when you can no longer see them again. Right. Like you're gonna have the WWE Network to go back and watch all the classics. But I think it's still cool when you get Shawn Michaels, Triple H, The Undertaker, and Kane in the same ring, and and, and it's not cringeworthy. It's not terrible. It's still whatever. You know, you'll watch it. But 
squashing Braun Strowman, I just don't get that because you know there's a there's a logic to like say say that match never happened and you have Brock Lesnar squash Daniel Bryan and he was a baby face at the time. Now it's like the crowd gets more behind Daniel Bryan because it's like oh you know sometime Goliath does beat David and you want to root for him even more because the 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 odds seem insurmountable. But when you have Braun Strowman, the guy that has been I would say has garnered their biggest crowd reaction over the last two years and he's still kinda of chasing the WWE title, like you don't you don't you don't squash a big guy. Like that doesn't I don't think that that helps them. That that can only hurt them. Like that doesn't build up um, that doesn't build up sympathy with the audience. It kind of builds up to like a level of apathy where it's like, oh, well, maybe maybe he's not the monster that we thought he was. It's not, like Braun Strowman can never be the little engine that could. Right. So I, I I don't agree with like trying to to use a wrestling angle where you get squashed and like that mess it up for like the big. Like, it's a big comeback story. Like, it's never going to work that way. Like, he's not Daniel Bryan. He's, a, he's, he's, a, he's huge. Like, you can't, you can't squash a guy like that. Especially, like, if it's Lesnar that's doing it. Like, Lesnar has already gotten the push of a lifetime. He's gotten every opportunity to, to put feathers in his cap. Like, I don't see what the benefit is there to squash Braun Strowman. But at least, at least it was, like, crown jewel. And it wasn't WrestleMania. Like, it's not... Um, it's not like one of like the big four, so uh, I mean, but it still hurts. Like I don't see how it helps. And Jared, if I was Braun Strowman and I'm seven foot tall, four hundred pounds of pure muscle, and you're telling me I got to travel seventeen hours to Saudi Arabia just to get squashed in about ninety seconds to another part timer like Lesnar, I'm not going. Like I don't know, I don't know why that happened. I mean. Over the course of the past few years, Vince has made a lot of questionable booking decisions. So it's not like I was completely shocked that it happened, more just angry like that. But who knows? And do you think there's any possible way that Vince puts Daniel Bryan over Brock Lesnar on Sunday? Um, Given that he's a heel and that he could use heel tactics. I mean, I feel like the crowd is not going to give Vince the reaction that he wants. Like, it can... It, he's a brand new heel like he didn't even have time like if they were going to turn Daniel Bryan heel at the payoff like there's not enough time for the payoff that they're obviously looking for so if you have Brock Lesnar like the the diehard wrestling fans are going to reject Brock Lesnar because he squashed Braun Strowman and Daniel Bryan is still going to get a baby face reaction despite being a heel so they're going to get polar opposite reactions, and it's going to be ass backwards. So uh, I don't know. I, I feel like if if Vince really wanted to piss off the WWE crowd, I think I don't know. That's mm, that's that's an interesting one. I feel like Daniel Bryan probably could go over, but I, I, he's going to get a babyface reaction. It's I don't know. That's a tough one. And I feel like if this was four years ago, I feel like it'd be a no-brainer having Brian, or not a no-brainer, but more logical sense, Brian going over Lesnar. I feel like Lesnar, he's already been uh, pinned once this year. I feel like that's it for like the next five years. So (laughs) we'll see. 
Uh, you mentioned earlier about Robbie Fox and Dave kind of bumping heads. My buddy, huge fan of his pizza reviews, wanted me to ask, what is it like working for a guy like Dave Portnoy? <laughs> uh, it depends on who you ask, I guess. <clears throat> um, I'm, sure, I'm sure everybody could speak to the experience of working for Dave uh, differently. <clears throat> but for me, I mean, he's always been fair to me. Uh, I think he's more often than not has treated me great. Um, he's a he's the type of guy that if you have a problem, you can go right to his office. He's easily accessible, and he's very willing to correct anything that might be going wrong um, to make sure that you know your working experience is the best that it possibly can be. Uh, I think that he's he's loyal to the guys that are loyal to him. Um, and that's really all you can ask for from a boss is uh, to A, be respected, and B, have that two-way street of loyalty. And uh, that's, that's kind of how my experience has been with Dave, where you know I've shown my loyalty to him, and he's shown his loyalty to me. And uh, that's, I mean, I, I don't know. It depends on who you ask, but that's, that's been my experience working for Dave. I think it's been... Uh, it's been the best that it possibly could be. All right. So I'll tell my buddy that. Good. So back to wrestling. I know this is kind of like a broken record. He said numerous times he's never returning to wrestling. But then there's always that part of me who was like, well, never say never. Do you think CM Punk will ever return to wrestling, regardless if it's WWE or something like New Japan with guys like Cody Rhodes, Jericho, and Omega? I don't know if he'll ever wrestle again. But the last time that we saw CM Punk on WWE television <clears throat> is not the last time that we'll see him on WWE television. Like, if he comes back, it might be to just, like, cut a promo, like a, like a closure thing. He'll want that closure eventually. I don't think it'll be anytime soon because, obviously, the, you know... Um, the legal battle that he had with WWE and their doctors, and then now he's still going through legal battles with Colt Cabana. So the the you know the after effect of him leaving is still ongoing. So it's still even though it's been like what three four years, um, it's still not removed enough to where it's like all right, it's been enough time. I think I can go back. Um, I I think by the time. By the time it's, it, he reaches a point to where he feels like he wants to come back to, to give a proper goodbye to professional wrestling, um, it'll be too late for him to maybe make an in-ring return. But you never say never. I mean, you still got, still got Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker going out there. Oh, yeah. Years old. So, uh, I would say, but, but for a guy like, like CM Punk and his wrestling style, um, I don't know, I would say that each year that passes, you, you really lose a significant percentage of, of the odds that he ever returns to the ring. Uh, plus, I believe him when he says that he, he lost his passion for it. Uh, maybe he comes back because he needs the money. They all, they all do. For, for whatever reason, they all come back. I mean, Bret Hart came back when he felt like the company killed his brother. And uh, Hulk Hogan came back after he testified in court against Vince McMahon. Right. So I, I think when it makes business sense, they all come back. It's just a matter of 
how much time do they need to sort of get over whatever it is that drove them away in the first place? Shawn Michaels obviously came back at Crown Jewel, probably got paid a shitload of money for that. Um, do you think it's a one-and-done for him, or do you think he has to have a little run here to kind of, like, signify his return, given, like, the way he first retired in that match at WrestleMania 26 with The Undertaker? Uh, I think, I think uh, I don't know if it'll be a run, but uh, I'm sure if, if he kind of came out of retirement for this, he'll probably do another match at WrestleMania. Right. I don't know who it'll be against. Um, I'm not crazy about seeing a third match with The Undertaker. Um, I don't think that doing this, like a repeat of the Crown Jewel tag match at WrestleMania would be great either. Maybe. I, I, I could see them doing that, honestly. But um, how does that affect The Undertaker's streak? The tag <laughs> matches count, I don't know. But um, I think for, for Shawn Michaels, I don't think... Uh, whatever the payday was, I'm sure it was well worth it to come back out of retirement because his 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 sign off was was great. Like the match with the under the, the two matches with the Undertaker at WrestleMania were all time classics. So I kind of wish that he did stay retired, but I'm not going to knock a guy for getting whatever. I mean, he probably got paid like two million bucks <laughs> to right. do that to do that affair at that match. So um, if you're gonna if you're gonna go back on your word that you're retired then you might as well make it worth it and collect another WrestleMania paycheck. It'll probably be the end at WrestleMania if he does come back. I feel like throwing him in the Royal Rumble match, you could get a lot out of that. Just give him, like, five minutes to work with guys like Styles or Brian or mm-hmm. Almas, any guys that any fans would ever want him to wrestle against, and then just have some match at WrestleMania maybe against Styles, someone who can actually take the heat off of him because obviously he didn't really he's not the same he was eight years ago so putting him in the ring with a great wrestler like Styles could really make the match I don't know maybe like three and a half star type match as opposed to that match at Crown Jewel which had a lot of ugly spots in it so I mean you obviously had a lot of great moments this year personally with the players won the 2018 World Series given that you covered the team this entire year which World Series win was your favorite out of the four, 04, 07, 13, or 18? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for personal reasons, probably 18. Uh, you know, obviously 04 was special for everybody. Um, 07 gets lost in the shuffle. 13 was special for the whole city of Boston because of what happened with the marathon. But 18 was... You know, I didn't know any of the players in 04, 07, or 13. I mean, I've come to know a bunch of them now, uh, but, like, in 18, it's like, you know, we're, we're in contact with these guys every day. Like, I would talk to Alex Moore every day. I would talk to J.D. Martinez almost every day. And uh, when I went back, I was I, – I went to every weekend homestand uh, for the entire season, I didn't miss an I didn't miss a weekend all season. So it's like you know you're talking to these guys all the time, and you're getting to build these personal relationships. So now you're you're invested in the team because it's your favorite team. But now you're also invested in these these personal stories. Like each guy has their own uh, personal story that you're now rooting for. Um, so yeah, I'd say like 18 is probably the most special to me personally. Section 10 obviously formed 
you had season tickets growing up at Fenway, Section 10. Talk to me about how Section 10 formed, given that you had season tickets in Section 10, and what it was like growing up at Fenway Park, especially during that 04 playoff season. Yeah, I mean, uh, I used to have Bruins season tickets back in the day, and then the Red Sox traded for Pedro in 98. So uh, my dad was like, yeah, we're going to get Red Sox season tickets. This guy's pretty good. So we ended up getting Red Sox season tickets in 98. Uh, I was nine years old, and um, I mean, I've just I've had the same view at Fenway ever since then for 20 years. Um, so yeah, it's it's been it's been great because I like the idea of you know obviously going to Fenway Park and watching the Red Sox with your dad is, is special, no matter where you sit. But to do it in the same seats since you were literally a little kid. And then you grow up and, uh, you know, what it's become now. I mean, like, my dad, I mean, you can't, you can't catch him outside of, of my parents' house not wearing some sort of Section 10 merch. <laughs> yeah. He, he plays in poker tournaments, he'll wear the Section 10 hoodie, and, you know, he'll wear the Section 10 t-shirts, and, yeah, he's all about it now. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's been really special to see how, you know, like, the, the podcast, has, has sort of made like a section at Fenway Park that would have been special to me regardless. You know, this sort of like, uh, you know, within the Red Sox culture, this like little phenomenon, which is, uh, it's, it's pretty crazy to see. You grew up in Saugus, Mass. You're the Saugus Rocket. Walk me through your time growing up in Saugus. You had your own blog, uh, writing your own book while you were pretty young, still in high school. And eventually being voted, what was it, the governor of Red Sox Nation? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I, all I did playing, I, all I did growing up was play baseball. I didn't really play. I, I played town team basketball, but uh, I played baseball all year round. Like, I would play, um, you know, obviously Little League, but then I would do, like, the travel baseball during the summer and in the fall. Uh, and then, you know, I'd play winter indoors. Um, and I did that pretty much up until like my early 20s is when I stopped playing. But um, I started my Red Sox blog when I was 16, and I kind of just did that as a hobby, and then it became something that I, I realized that I wanted to do for a living. And when I wrote the book, it was I started it as sort of like a, it was supposed to be like an online memoir because... In 2007, there was an election for president of Red Sox Nation, and then, like, the readers of my blog had nominated me. Like, they did, like, a write-in, like, a million times to get me in the, in the conversation for it. And uh, it kind of became this big thing, and um, I ended up finishing third. And then there was a bunch of, like, different cool experiences that I got because of that election. So I started writing, like, a memoir about 2007, and then it ended up being like 50 Microsoft Word pages. So I just decided to write the events that led up to that, like starting with, you know, the day that I was born. I was born on opening day, 1989. So I started there and, and went up until I was seven. And then by the time I finished that, 2008 had happened. So I wrote 2008. And then we put the book out in, in 2009. So, um, yeah, I kind of I, I want to write a second one. I feel like. 
if I write a second one, it would, I would do the first one over, because, like, my writing style has changed so much since then. Oh, I'm and sure. There's, yeah, there's things, there's things that, like, I didn't say in that one that I would probably say now, but there's things in the first one that, like, you know, if I look back, I'm like, yeah, I could probably take this out. It's not that important. Like, um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens, but <laughs> I think... I think that the second one is probably going to be something that I, I worked on this offseason. Yeah, especially with everything that went down this year. A lot, yeah. a lot to talk about. So last question before I let you go. It's probably going to be the stupidest question I've asked you on this entire show because my buddy, big barstool guy, wanted me to ask you this. So you ready for this? Yeah. What are Saturdays for? Oh, God. Yeah, I told I you. I believe they are for the boys. I believe they're <laughs> the boys, but sometimes, sometimes they're just for sitting on your couch and eating double stuff Oreos and watching Netflix. I'm so bummed. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's probably going to break up with you. She's definitely going to break up with me. Should have used tick pick. Wait, what'd you say? Tick pick. Look. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, TickPick. I thought you said TickPick. No hidden fees. Download today. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.